Amen. How we doing, Harlem? Did you guys like that new song, Fill Me With Your Spirit? You guys sound good back there. Let's go to God with the word of prayer. Today we start a new discipline. One I'm pretty sure we're all going to be fired up about. Let's pray. Our gracious and awesome God, Father, we come before you thanking you for allowing us to come to a place where we can be refreshed, where we can worship you with some AC and not have to worry about fans or or, or, or bugs flying around our heads, God. We can focus entirely on you and on your word and on each other. And God, I pray that this time in your word will be a time of refreshing. It will be an encouraging time. It will be a convicting time. It will be an inspiring time. And I pray, Father, that uh, you will be with our sister who lost her mom, God. I pray that you will comfort her, that your spirit will be by her side, as we know that you are close to the brokenhearted. And our sister Julie is such a great servant here in Harlem, God. We pray that you will comfort her, that the church there will embrace her and her family, God. And uh, we pray for all those of us who are suffering, who are going through trials at this time, that you will give us the courage and the strength that we need uh, to see it through. Father, be with me at this time as I preach your word. It's all in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, when we are excited about our relationship with Jesus, we feel at peace knowing that we're doing what the Bible says. You know, I remember some 20 plus years ago, I was a conflicted young man. I knew that what I was doing and how I was living wasn't right, but I didn't necessarily know how to change it. I knew church was somewhere in the, in the plans. I just didn't know how to go about it. And so I visited, I've listened, but nothing really stuck. And I'm pretty sure some of us can relate to that, right? And it wasn't until I sat down with a few young men, and they opened the scriptures, and they showed me God's will for my life. And that's when the road to change started to take place for me. You know, I, even to this day, I still feel my best when I'm doing what the Bible says. And it's not easy. You know, there are times where I've literally sat in my chair and have wrestled with God. I don't want to do this. I don't want to say that. I don't want to talk to her again about this. And I don't want to be talked to again about this. And you, you, you just sit there and you're wrestling with yourself because you know you got to do what the, you got to do the right thing. And if you've made the Bible your standard, then you know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm a self-centered person by nature. You don't have to amen that. I already know. It's something that I dislike about myself. It's one of the, you know, most people when they, when they are about to get married, they're afraid of, you know, someone, you know, their spouse finding out their bad habits or, or maybe some other insecure. You know what I was afraid of? I was afraid of how much my selfishness was going to be exposed. So when I married Zalika Warren, 
I thought, all right, brace yourself, sister, because we got a lot. We got a lot to work through. But I tell you, you know, even then, I felt good when I was doing what the Bible says. As a husband, as a father, as a disciple of Jesus, I feel my best when I know that I'm following the scriptures, when I'm at least doing what the Bible says. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to be flawless at it. But God wants us to at least be willing to do what the Bible says and to put our best effort into it. You know, sometimes it's like trying to make a layup in basketball. Some of us can do it with ease. Some of us are going to have a hard time at doing that. But in some of us, it's all right. That's not your sport. It's okay. But with Christianity, God expects everyone to try. Because this is something we all can do. Everyone can follow Jesus. You know, there have been times where I've sat in those very seats and I heard a message and got a, got a deep conviction about what I heard, but didn't really change a thing. There are times we hear messages, we feel convicted, but then we make excuses for why or justify why we don't change. Oh, I'm too young. He's talking to the old folks. He's talking to my parents. He's not talking to me. Oh, yeah, that message is for my husband. I'm going to make sure I take good notes for him. You may find yourself saying things like, I felt convicted, but that doesn't really apply to me. Or, I know I should change, but God understands my situation. And then there are those times we get so convicted, we're like, I need to actually do something this time. And then we decide to change. You know, when I go through scripture, I see that Satan doesn't mind you and I reading our Bibles. Satan doesn't even mind you getting convicted as long as you don't change. He doesn't mind you getting in Bible studies. He doesn't mind you praying together. He doesn't mind you breaking bread in your homes with glad and sincere hearts. He doesn't mind you crying together. Serving together, hugging one another with your little side hugs. He doesn't mind all that. You know why? Because as long as you don't change, it doesn't matter. He wants us to ignore what James 1.22 says, where it says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You know, as long as we... Ignore this passage. We gloss over passages like this. Satan is happy. You can go to church. He comes to church too. It's when it comes to action. When we say we're going to change something, that's when Satan gets up. That's when he gets uncomfortable. Satan keeps us from acting on our convictions. He's content with that. He's happy with you going to church. He'll even sing some of the songs you prepare yourself to go to church. He'll hum along with you. Because he knows you don't plan to change nothing. So come on, let's sing that song. How does it go again? I'm going to tell you right now. If Satan can infiltrate Jesus' 12, you can't tell me he can't infiltrate Harlem. 
You know, Jesus tells us in John chapter 12, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will eventually lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, that's a, that's a very interesting paradox right there, because in our minds, we're like, well, wait a second. I've always been raised to have a great life, to pursue a great life, to pursue the American dream. And here Jesus comes along and tells me I need to hate my life in order to save it. What does that mean? Jesus is basically saying you need to change if you want to embrace the life that I have in store for you. Because only spiritual people can reap spiritual fruit. And I'm calling you to a spiritual place. This place is going to pass away. Why would you want to stay rooted to this? you got to die to this. Let me tell you, my wife and I, man, our cars are collecting dents. Just a few, just a week ago, my wife is coming, coming home from Pennsylvania. Somebody sideswipes her car and just keeps going. Now, the old James... Would have been cursing from all the high heaven. I would have said, I would have went through the, the, the glossary of curse words. Because I would have been so upset because now I gotta come out of my pocket and, and fix this car and and, 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 and and these daggone people. And but because Jesus is in my life, because I hated that old life, and I I'm 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 moving on. You know what, Lord? I just preached a whole series on surrender. What are you going to do? But when your heart is so attached to this life, those things bother you and will even make you sin against God. You may not say something, but in your heart, ooh, we can look in there. Satan wants us to remain a single seed that does not grow. And Jesus says that to grow, we have to die to ourselves, which means we have to change. It's a transformation that happens. Following Jesus involves action. Satan hates action. He hates change. And so because disciples don't change, Satan gains more victory within God's kingdom. But when we change something, he doesn't like that. And that spiritual change the Bible calls repentance. When John the Baptist first started preaching, what was his message about? Repentance. When Jesus came on the scene, he sat and watched for 30 years and he started his ministry. His first sermon was, repent or perish. Peter when he was finally given a chance, after Jesus restored him to the kingdom on the day of Pentecost in front of thousands of Jews, he had his one shot. And I'm pretty sure Peter wanted to say a whole lot of things to his countrymen. But what did he say? Repent and be baptized. Paul, after Jesus restored him, converted his soul, he went before kings he went before philosophers and he preached one message, repentance, change, because times of refreshing are on its way. 
Today we're going to talk about being refreshed. I don't know about you, but I like to be refreshed. When I drive in the car, I don't like driving with my windows down because that hot air comes in there. No, I want the AC on because I want to be refreshed. I'm not talking about that kind of refreshing, though. I'm talking about a refreshing that your soul is calling out for. I'm talking about a refreshing that, that, that only God himself can provide. And that can only be achieved through true repentance. So we're going to talk about being refreshed. Is that all right with you guys? We're going to look at, over the the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what true repentance is and what it's not. That's what we're going to look at today. And then the next time we're together, we're going to talk about how to produce true repentance in your life. And then we're going to be encouraged about the fruits of repentance. We're going to look at what exactly God refreshes in our lives through repentance. Amen? So let's get into this. Now, I got a bunch of Greek words because it's kind of hard to know what repentance is. You see these words, and we got a lot of words we throw around. uh, And and some of you guys that are visiting like, what is that? So very briefly, all right? Repentance simply means there are three words that make up the word to true repentance. There's a repentance when you change your mind. Basically, you're you're making a different decision. Then there's a second word, uh, metanoeo, which basically talks about you change, but then you also change your purpose. You change your mind, you change your purpose. But the word that the New Testament gives us for true repentance combines those two words, but also throws your heart in the mix. It also throws your purpose in the mix. It also throws your life in the mix. Metanoia. It's change your mind, which will change your heart, which will change the course of your life. That leads to refreshing times that God provides. We want true repentance. We don't want to just talk about changing. We want to truly change. Because if we're going to see God work in our lives and do incredible things, that we have to be agents of change, and we have to be willing to grow. True repentance is changing your mind, changing your purpose, changing your life. It's that 180. Now, some of you may be like, bro, I'm right back where I started. Oh, that's not repentance. You just went around in circles. And that's not what we want, right? I cannot go back to the old James. I don't want to. I can't go back to the old James. Because my family will kick me out the house. And I love my wife. And I love my children. I don't want them to know the old James. Sometimes at the dinner table, I'll tell them little stories about my childhood and everything. But I can't tell them everything. That's all buried in Christ. Why why are we digging up the past, y'all? Let's keep all that old, keep the old you back there. You know, sometimes people reminisce about those old days. Like, yeah, I used to get drunk. (laughs) And we laughing, like we reminiscing like, I miss that. Man, I used to be up in the clubs, you know. Yeah, I was a player. You sound like you missed that, bro. Yo, Jesus died for that sin. That's that's nothing to, to play with. You know, we, we, we refer to our past as 
a point of reflection, is a point to connect, but that's not something we want to go back to. So true repentance is not going back to where you came. It's going away from. Turning away from that life you used to live and, tor- and turning towards God. And so that is the goal of repentance. But, you know, we need examples. Because I needed to see some examples of what true repentance looks like and what false repentance looks like. Because there is, there is that other type of repentance where it's not true repentance. So let's look at a few examples of what repentance is not. Amen? 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We're going to call this worldly sorrow. Because Paul mentions two types of sorrows that one leads to repentance, the other one leads away from repentance. So let's look at some examples. One example is Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 27, God had sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. God had heard his people's cries, and he sent Moses to Pharaoh, and he told him, let my people go so that they may go and worship me. And in verse 27, it says, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I've sinned. God had sent Pharaoh plagues because Pharaoh refused to obey God. And so he sent these plagues over the people of Egypt. And here... He calls Moses and Aaron. He says, this time I've sinned, he said. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Doesn't that sound good enough for you? Somebody just wronged you, and they come up to you, and they say, look, it's my fault. Praise to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Didn't take long. For Pharaoh to renege on his word. Down in verse 35, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. Now, I know y'all like, Pharaoh. Let's turn that around for a second. Pharaoh was sorry, but he was not sorry enough to change. You know, sometimes... We take our circumstances and situations to God. We'll even ask people to pray for us. Ask God to change my situation. And God, being the faithful God and compassionate God that he is, answers those prayers. Because we said we would change if he did. Only to have our situations removed or our our, our circumstances changed. And then we go right back to doing what we did before. Just saying you're sorry, it's not repentance. Even admitting you were wrong doesn't mean you'll change. Let's look at another example. King Saul. After God had, after David, well, actually a little before David slew Goliath, God had already chosen David to replace Saul as king. And so David 
Before he could take on the throne, he had to wait for Saul to be removed from the throne. And in between that time, Saul pursued David out of envy. He wanted to destroy David. He was so envious that it it drove him mad. And he pursued David to kill him. But David, being a man of integrity, chose to leave instead of staying to fight Saul and take what was rightfully his. So one day, you know, Saul's pursuing David. They they happen to be in in the back of this cave hiding from Saul. And Saul picks that cave to go and use the restroom. He's in a very vulnerable position. Now, whoever thinks that the Bible is born, you got to read your Bible. It leaves nothing out. So Saul's in the back of his cave, relieving himself. David and his guys are back there. David had the perfect opportunity. In fact, one of his men said, the Lord has delivered him in your hands. He's right there. And David crept up, took his knife, cut off an edge of Saul's robe. He must have been pretty preoccupied to not notice that. And he creeps back into the cave. Saul goes out. And then David stands at the mouth of the cave. In 1 Samuel 24, verse 16, he says, When David finished saying, Saul asked, is that your voice, my, my David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me the good you did for me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. The Bible says that Saul wept out loud. He acknowledged David's integrity. You're more righteous than I. He even admitted to treating David badly. He said, I treated you badly. But did he repent? Chapter 26, verse 1. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding in the hills of Hecala, which faces Jessamim? So Saul went down the desert of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men to search for David. Saul was sorry. He even cried out loud. He even told David, you are a man of integrity. David spared his life. How grateful would you be if someone spared your life? And all they ask you to do is just leave me alone. That's pretty much what David's speech summed up to. Look, this is a piece of your robe. I could have killed you. But I spared, I showed you mercy. Now do the same and leave me alone. Saul felt convicted. But he didn't change. He didn't change. So we got another example. Judas. In Matthew 27, we all know about the infamous kiss of death. Judas met Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He took along, he brought along a, a, a group of Jews and, and, and soldiers to betray Jesus. He told them, the one I kiss is the one you want. He walks up to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek, and Jesus is arrested. And that begins that long road to the cross. Judas didn't feel great about that. He did all that for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Now that doesn't sound like a lot to us. But it must have been a lot to him to betray his, 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 his friend for 30 pieces of silver. And so early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And in return, the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders, I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Jesus trusted Judas. He sold him out. He betrayed him. And it says that Judas was seized with remorse. He even went back to the temple to return the money. He tried to make things right. But what Judas should have done instead was return to God. You see, these three men said the right things, felt guilty, confessed, admitted wrongdoing. One guy even cried out loud. But it was worldly sorrow because it didn't lead to change. Now ask yourself, when was the last time you really changed something in your life? And I'm not just talking about your wardrobe. I'm not even talking about your diet. I'm talking about something in your character that God revealed was not like Jesus. Whether it was through your personal times in the word, whether it was through a message, or whether it was through a personal conversation. When someone said, you know what, you need to work on that. You need to change that. How did you respond? Did you weep bitterly? Oh, I can't believe I've been a disciple for 20 years. I can't change. I can't do it. That's not repentance. Did you admit, yeah, you know what, you're right, bro. I've been, I know, you know, I was reading this the other day. I know I got to change. I got to change. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for pointing that out. That's not repentance. Did you apologize profusely? That's not repentance. You see, all those things can lead to repentance, but until you decide to change, it's not true repentance. It's just worldly sorrow. And you may be asking yourself, why do I keep coming back to this place? Because you're, you're going around in circles because you haven't changed. God doesn't want you to go around in circles. 
God is like, no, no, let me teach you what it means to change. How to do that. And he gives us a great example in David. You know, David was not the perfect king. He was a lousy father, unfaithful husband. He was deceitful, committed murder, committed adultery. David was not the perfect guy. But in the book of Acts, he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. Isn't that amazing? That someone who did all that in his life, and God said, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. God was willing to bless David's life if he wasn't content with what God already gave him. But what made David a man after God's own heart? He embraced true repentance. It starts with humbling yourself. In Psalm 51, David writes this psalm shortly after he commits murder, I mean, commits murder and adultery with Bathsheba. He starts off, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Right there, he throws himself at God's mercy. He humbles himself. You know, I've, I've seen people, I've seen disciples defend their sin. Like you got grounds to stand on before God. Defend their actions. Well, she said it first, or he did this. What are you talking about? David said, have mercy on me. He threw himself at God's mercy. You know, when you ask God for mercy, that's humbling. Because you're admitting, God, I've done something wrong that deserves punishment. David braced himself, and he laid out to God's mercy. Second step is owning your sin. You got to take responsibility. You can't blame people for your actions. He cut me off, man. You should have saw the way he cut me off. Okay. But he didn't, he couldn't put those words in your mouth that can't. He make you upset. I'm like, come on now. Well, if it wasn't for, you know, I would be a better wife if, if he just did this. Maybe that would help. But is it possible that you contributed to any of it? Now, I know how we like to lift up our wives. And look, I'll be the first one. But let me tell you. I love me some sisters, Zalika Warren. But there are times where brother got to dig deep. And remember those quiet times and amen. Love covers over multitudes of sin. And I know she be praying to God for strength when it comes to me. But you know what makes it work between us? When we bump heads, when we sin against each other, we talk, and we own our sin. It never works. 
And they're like, well, if you do this, or if you change this, or if you just this, this, and if you can just do this, then maybe I'll change. What if your kids said that to you? I want you to be obedient. Well, you know what, mommy? I'll be more obedient if you did blah, 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 blah. That logic doesn't pan out on anything. You would lose your job if you went to your boss and said, well, look, I'd be a better employee if you did, 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 did. Oh, okay, okay. See you. got to own your part. And if you have a hard time seeing your sin in it, then now you got to humble yourself. Back up a step. Humble yourself. Okay, God, show me my part in this. I know my wife, I know my husband has these tendencies, but show me my part in this. All sin is an offense against God. That's what, that's what David is saying here. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood who the judge, jury, and executioner was. He laid himself at God's mercy, and he understood that all sin is against, is against God, first and foremost. You know, he thought that he could get away with his sin, but then God called him out on it through Nathan. And then David humbled himself, and he got right with God. Sometimes God will call you to change through someone else. But who do you see? Is it people getting on your case, or do you see this as, you know what? God must be saying something. You know, I like to think, like the Bible says, we all have one spirit. So if someone can see something in me that needs to change, then who am I to say that they're not right? We all have the spirit and maybe the spirit, and the Bible says that the spirit convicts us of sin. I've had young Christians point out sin in my life. And just like a good old Christian who's been around for a while, who are you talking to? (laughs) Now that doesn't help them out because now they're looking at the Bible and saying, well, wait a second, I thought that we all had the spirit. So you can point out sin in me, but I can't point out sin in you. What if that's the only person that's in your vicinity at the time? Nathan was under David's authority, not the other way around. Imagine how much courage it took for Nathan to approach the king and deliver that message. You're the man. That's all I can imagine because David could have had him killed. He wasn't in the right frame of mind. But because David loved God, he responded the way God wanted us to respond when he points out sin in our life. I've sinned against you. You. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against her husband. But he made it between him and God. Against you, Lord, I've sinned. He owned his sin. He took responsibility. And lastly, we need to ask God to help us to be renewed from within. You know, repentance is not about behavior change. Can I make that clear right there? Because I think oftentimes we look for the behavior before we look for the renewal within. 
Now, the behavior can be a sign, but we saw just a few examples. Somebody can cry out loud and still not change a thing. Someone could apologize profusely and still not change a thing. So if you're looking for behavior change, we're looking for the wrong things. David prayed to God because he knew for me to sin against God like that, it's an internal issue. And I need to get changed from within. Psalm 51 verse 6, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. What inner parts do you think he's talking about? In Psalm 51, verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Down in verse 12, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We sing that song. David wrote that from a point of brokenness. He wrote that with a contrite heart. He wrote that with every intention in his heart to change. When we go before God like that, God can't help but refresh us. Because we're showing God that our relationship is that important. I am willing to give up anything. I am willing to humble myself no matter how low I got to go, God, to be right with you. If I got to apologize, amen. If I got to return something, amen. If I got to change, if I got to give up something, if I got to quit something, whatever it takes to be right with you, amen. That's the heart, the attitude that leads to repentance. That is godly sorrow. You can't have godly sorrow without being godly. Renewed from within. Let me tell you, I go back to the day when I repented the first time to become a Christian. As sort of like that benchmark in my life. When I'm, when I'm thinking about, can I change this? I go back to that. I remember how convicted I was by the scriptures. I remember how the cross was always before me, how I knew my sin put Jesus on the cross. I got to change this. And that attitude, I want to still be within me today. It's not easy because, let me tell you, when you walk with Jesus, you can make all sorts of excuses why you shouldn't change. And you throw God's, God's uh, grace out there. God's gracious. God understands my situation. No, he does understand your situation, which is why you need to repent. And we'll throw out there, well, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. That's right. And you should be terrified of that. We're trying to help prepare you for that day. Because I think people think that they're going to go before God and be like, hey, you know, I didn't let them judge me, Lord, because I was going to wait for you to judge me. Really? You don't think I sent them to prepare you for this meeting? You better make sure you, you, you sure you want God to judge you? You better know what that means before you start saying, is God holds your words. And the very words we speak, he said, every careless word will be used against us. 
The difference between King Saul and King David is that when Saul sinned, he said all the right things. He showed the emotion. He made the empty promises without any intention to change. David, however, when he sinned, decided to do something about it. He refused to stay in his sinful state. He pursued repentance. He didn't harden his heart like Pharaoh. He didn't give lip service like Saul. And he didn't give in to self-pity like Judas. David humbled himself and asked God to show him mercy. And he responded by owning his own sin and allowed God to renew him from within. Repentance is a decision to change the course you're on. It's a decision to give up whatever's keeping you away from God because it's not worth it. And the life that Jesus promises you is absolutely worth it. Does this describe your understanding of true repentance? Because if it doesn't, then you need more godly sorrow. And I want to encourage you to pursue that. Humble yourself, own your mistakes, and ask God to change you from within. Acts 3 verse 19 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There will be times of refreshing, and I hope we all get to enjoy it. In God's name, amen. <laughs>